But we're going to talk this morning about what God sees in this series, this, this wonderful story from the Bible about Noah is just overflowing with insight and truth about God's plan to save a lost world. And it's a very dramatic story, and it's a very exciting story. And so when you read through it or you see it visualized on a television screen, it's an exciting story, and it's meant to be that. And what often happens when I'm studying the Word is a phrase or two or a word will sort of pop out to me, and it'll just sort of stick with me for a day or two. Uh, I'll go back over it and uh, think about it, and it just sort of keeps playing in my mind or through my head and my heart. And so I blame that on the Holy Spirit and that he's trying to say something to me. And oftentimes that becomes the content of the sermon that's coming up. And and so I appreciate how good the Holy Spirit is to me in that regard. And one of the striking verses of the Noah story is in the beginning, back in the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 6. So if you want to spin there or flip there in your Bibles, we're going to read a couple of verses there and, and try to see what God might be saying to us about what he sees. It says this in verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So verse 5 says, The Lord saw. Okay. Then here's another one in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So once again, a reference to God seeing something. Twice in this short passage, the reference is made to God seeing. In the first case, he sees the wickedness of humankind, and it stresses him, it hurts him, it breaks his heart. But it also tells us that when God looked over at Noah, he felt good. God liked what he saw in Noah. So it's teaching us some wonderful things. Now, we know that God is not human like us. God is something else. He has his own molecules. He is spirit, the Bible tells us. And whatever he is, he is uniquely that. And so we want to try to make sure we understand that God teaches us about himself by using language and images that that we can understand. And this one today is that he sees Seeing or sight is an astounding miracle. Just lose it and you'll know. Sightedness is a physical way of bringing something around you, an image around you, into your mind. That's the purpose of seeing. Seeing gives us an understanding of things that are around us. It moves from the outside of us to the inside of us, right? And once it's inside of us, we can react to it. That's what sight does for us. We can love what we see. We can disdain what we see, we can change what we see, we can fix it, and if it's fried chicken, we can eat it, right? So seeing is a good thing. And like verse 5 tells us that God saw the wickedness of the world, and verse 6 says he regretted, after he saw, he regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and it says his heart was deeply troubled. Hmm. It tells us in this way God wants to see that He's like us, or we're like him, rather, in that when we see something, it produces a reaction in us. And in this case, God was troubled, deeply troubled, the Scripture tells us. So troubled that he wanted a do-over. So sight is a wonderful thing. It allows us to notice, to take in things, and to also be moved by 
by things. Now, that's not to say that people who might not be able to have physical vision are unable to see in their minds and hearts. Because that's where the real truth lies, right? People without sight, physical sight, can still be people of great vision. They can still be people who are deeply and wonderfully moved inside of them. People without sight can be amazing in what they can understand about the world around them, even though they can't see with their physical eyes. There's a, there's a, there's an episode of MASH that I like. I know. I'm old. Do you watch, who, who watches MASH? Anybody? Okay. You're cool people. I like you. Um, there's an episode of MASH and there's a guy named Hawkeye. He's one of the surgeons. And, and he has an accident trying to fix the nurse's furnace. It blows up and he becomes blind temporarily. And, and at first he just absolutely freaks out. Okay. Cause he's a surgeon. And as a surgeon, he can't imagine how he's going to do his job without these eyes. And so they wrap up his eyes in a bandage, and he gets treated, and they just say he's got to take a couple of days and rest, and so he's sent back to his tent, okay? And he becomes troubled about his patients. He's worrying about them. And so he decides to go ahead and head to post-op where his patients are, and he, he checks on them. Someone walks him there, but when he gets there, he goes from bed to bed and stands there and tries to get next to the patients and see what he can learn. And he struggles at first to understand what's going on. But in a short while, he starts listening more carefully. He starts imagining in his mind that patient and their condition. And, and he moves to one bed, and he starts making jokes about his own appearance. And the patient says something like, well, how would I know what you look like? And so Hawkeye's a little bit offended at first by that, but he listens more carefully with his mind, and he realizes that the patient he's in front of is also blinded. The patient, like Hawkeye, is wrapped up in a bandage, and he can't see. And so Hawkeye and this patient, these two blinded guys, form a friendship. They talk about food. They talk about the smells of life. They talk about experiences in their heart. And the patient talks about how difficult it's going to be when he gets back to the mainland to tell his wife that he's never going to be able to see her again. He's greatly distressed by that. And Hawkeye then realizes that his blindness is permanent. So he has this moment with him where he sort of sees the way he does and the pain that this man feels. And the point of the story, besides that MASH is cool, is that the purpose of sight is to help us see inside of ourselves as well as to see inside other people. And sight is only part of it, visual sight. And so when the Bible tells us that God sees, it's not so much about physical sight. It's, it's deeper than that. And, and more importantly, it's telling us that God has a heart. God can feel. God can sense. Of course, God thinks. And God sees with that heart, and he uses what he sees to touch the human life. That's one of his purposes. Psalm 34 and 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Scripture literally says, God is watching you. That's what our word is telling us there, that he sees the righteous. The righteous is a number, another term for those who follow him, right? Those who follow after God are made righteous before him because of the blood of Jesus. And they're made holy by his forgiveness and his salvation. And the Bible considers that righteousness, being right. So that means God sees our lives. 
He sees it. He sees your life as you attend church this morning, as you were tempted to stay in bed because it was a rainy day. God saw you, and the Holy Spirit convicted you, and you said, oh, I got it. I'm going to get up. That's what happened today because God saw you trying to sleep in. He saw you. <laughs> he sees you. He sees you as you came. He sees you as you try to be a blessing to others this morning. God sees, and I love that. And in his seeing, he uses his hearing to listen to your cries, to listen to your concerns. We're learning here that God doesn't just observe like a robot or a sensor in a car. We have one of those that goes off when we get near things in the front of the car and in the back of the car. You're pulling it to the, our garage, and if there's a box there, another Amazon box that has been delivered, we get close to it. It goes beep, 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 and that's my signal to pay for something first. And second, it's the let me know that I need to stop. Well, God's more than that. He, he's more than a God that just beeps in our lives. He's a God that sees and feels and reacts and blesses and challenges. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. So God also sees the bad guys, okay? He sees you when you were wicked. He, he saw you in your turbulence. He saw you in your pain. He saw you in your struggle. He sees. He sees. He sees everything. He sees good. He sees evil. He's more than that beeping sensor, and he's not observing just to pass time. God is more than an observer. He's more than a mere recorder of your life. He sees you with purpose. And he feels and he thinks about what he sees in your life. I am so comforted by that. God saw my struggle this week. God saw yours. God saw the sin in someone else that maybe caused a problem for you. God saw and God sensed. And the Bible says he's listening when you cry out about things. Not only is he watching, but he's listening. He sees with purpose. Genesis 16 is an incredible story. So if you've got a Bible, flip there. Or you can read along on the screen. We see this wonderful story about an ancient family of, of God followers who were in the livestock business, okay? This family could easily be a Harmony Church family in 2022. And Genesis 16 takes us inside, gives us an up-close look at a very deep human struggle going on in this home. The home is led by Abram and Sarah. They're soon to be called Abraham and Sarah. Many of you know who I'm talking about. And there's also an Egyptian maid that Abraham had purchased for his wife. I know, that's, that's a long time ago and things were very different. Abram's a businessman. He has herds and sheep and cattle and he also has slaves. And Sarah is the woman of, the, of his dreams. He, he loves her so much. He, he's devoted to her. But she's unable to have children. And that's an important point in their lives. Children that God has promised them. And they're so desperate about that. And you have Hagar there, who's the, the young maid, the slave. And it's a very difficult situation for this precious family. There's a hurtful longing in them to have a child. And I imagine as they wanted children, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham, Abram and Sarah at this time had some tough arguments. I know people around here that have gone through that same struggle. There's self-doubt, there's disappointment. And I'm sure there have been long prayers before God because Abram was not a stranger to faith. In fact, they're, they're both very faith-filled and faithful people. 
And God had placed upon them a dynamic and unique and wonderful calling. And we can read about it in Genesis 12. It says this. One day, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Okay? Many of you are familiar with this. And we call him the father of the nation of Israel because of this dynamic day in his life, this moment in time when God laid upon him a calling and a purpose for his entire life. And this promise is to raise up a nation. And it wasn't just about being an administrator of the nation. He is called to be a father of that nation, to literally have children that would become that nation. Genesis 12 again, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay, it's getting more personal. And he took his wife Sarah, verse 5, and his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set up for the land of Canaan. So they, they're, they're doing what God wants them to do, and it's clear that God intended for Abram and his wife to start a nation, a family, with their own children, that would fear God. And so they go off, and they're being faithful. This is just the beginning of it. Abraham's the father, Sarah's the mother. Okay? And then we come to Genesis 16. Some time has passed, and it says this. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's been like 10 years. 10 years with a calling on their life. 10 years since the U-Haul moved up and they left town to go have children and start a nation. 10 years, nothing. There have been no birth. It's as if God was silent about the promise he had given them. It'd be like me being called to Harmony Church 10 years ago and nobody came for 10 years. That would be tough. Abraham has prayed about it. You know he did. But God didn't address this issue of barrenness other than to simply reinforce that he was going to be a father. Didn't tell him why she was barren. Didn't tell him why he was suffering. Didn't tell him why he was going through this time of silence from God. In fact, Genesis 15, God tells Abram, I I, I want you to know, Abram, it's going to happen. Just look up in the sky and try to count the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Yet they're not having kids. So God had given Abram and Sarah the what about their life, but not the when. That is so hard. You ever been through that? Oh, I go through it all the time. I would move a lot faster if I was God. Just for your sakes. But he has his perfect timing, right? Now, it's been suggested by greater preachers than me that when God seems silent... It's because you're perhaps in a time of testing. There's silence during a test at school, right? You have to look within yourself for those answers based on what you've already been taught. In this case, what has God already said to Abram? That's what he's going through. And even though there's silence now, what did God say before? And that's what Abram is supposed to turn back to. And that's what a test is. It's about testing what you have come to know. And during a test, the teacher is silent, right? So in our life, sometimes we're going to be tested, tested about what we already know about God, what God's promises have been. 
And see, I think sometimes after God gives us promises, He sometimes waits for our faith to kick in about those promises. God told Noah to build an ark. And at that point, it's up to Noah to head to Home Depot. Right? Doesn't have to keep telling him. Doesn't have to say over and over again, I just need you to do this. And so God, maybe sometimes, God does wait on us to move a little bit because he has already taught us something and he wants to see that we've learned it. And in this case, their mission in life was to keep believing in the promise of God. Mm, And that can be hard. I know that. I know that. And so Noah didn't have to wake up every day wondering if God still wanted him to build it. Now, there had to be times when supplies were hard to find, when the cost of goods had gone up, and maybe he had to travel farther and farther to get the pitch and gather what he needed. And the whole time he's doing this, there's no rain clouds to be seen. No rain. And so maybe this is one of those times for Abraham and Sarah, I don't know, because God had given them the promise. But here was their cha- here, here is where God was challenging them. Could they keep believing enough Could they remain a follower of God long enough to see it come to pass? The timing of God is one of the most challenging aspects to wanting to follow God closely. Timing is tough. My young friend back here just got out of the military, right? Just got out. They make you wait so long for things to happen when you're in the military. Even when you join. It's like, we're going to get you into basic training and start you on your wonderful career. When am I going? We don't know yet. Wait for a letter. And you just learn to just obey. They put you in places where you live in a barracks with no job. I don't remember what they call that, but you can be in a situation where you don't have a job assignment and you're just on standby. You're in casual status, I think we used to call that. That happens even in the military. Well, it happens with God sometimes. And in the meantime, with these guys, they're getting older and time is running out. I mean, they're in their 80s. It's, it's, it's a frustrating time for them. So instead of sticking with their faith, they start having this idea that maybe they could help God's plan move along, if you know the story. So Sarah comes to Abraham one day and she says, I have this idea. Hubby dear, I heard that it's legal here in Canaan for you to have a relationship with our slave, and if she has a son, then it's legal to call him your son, and it's legal to call him my son. So it's proper to do that. And so let's consider that. Let's do that. And then after she has a son, I can cut her loose, and she can have her freedom. We'll have our son, and God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And that's what happens In Genesis 16, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abraham, here it is, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave, and perhaps we can build, I can build a family through her. Now, I don't want to be too hard on this couple, but Sarah is clearly panicking, okay? She has this idea because she believes, I believe, with all her heart that the promises of God are true. But she doesn't know how God is going to do it. And that's the struggle of life. How and when. She knows that God's going to promise. So she develops her own strategy to take over the situation. You see that? And have you ever done that? And maybe it looks interesting on the surface. Maybe this would be all right. Many people would say. But that's not what God said should happen. God said it would be Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham agrees with the plan. The servant becomes pregnant. 
Everything seems fine at first, but then things got weird. Weird. This new family plan started going downhill. Family drama starts taking over. And what happens is, plain, ordinary jealousy and hurt starts coming out. Hagar realizes she's pregnant, and she gets uppity about it. And she starts talking to the lady of the house about it. And in turn, Sarah becomes resentful. It's a whole thing. And it starts to show this sort of anger toward each other. And Sarah especially resents Hagar. And Hagar retaliates with the same jealousy and resentment. And then Sarah starts to blame her husband, Abraham, for going along with the game. And somehow, Hagar gets snooty, Sarah gets snooty, and Abram's just going, I just did what I was told. And, and they argue, and, and they resent one another. And you ever been there? You ever done that? Ever resented anybody in your life? Raise your hand. Amen, Lord Jesus. Don't resent. I'm not, I'm not asking if you resented your husband or wife, just anyone, anybody. Well, we feel that, don't we? When things don't work out, we like to blame somebody. Okay? They argue. They resent one another. She kind of tells him off, and honestly, she lets him have it. And he's standing there dumbfounded. Like I said, I'm so confused. It's a good time for them all. Finally, Abram gets fed up. He puts the responsibility back on her. I love it. Verse 6, he says, your slave is in your hands. You do whatever you think is best about that situation. So Sarah mistreats her, the Bible says, and then Hagar runs away. Basically, Abraham says, that's your problem. She's your slave. She continues to mistreat her. And the slave runs away. That doesn't look like God's plan unfolding, does it? Guys, this precious couple no longer looks like the spiritual giants that we know them, that they are. They, they look like weak, frustrated humans. They look more like me. Everyone in the story is kind of falling apart. And it's easy for us to see the problem since we get to read it all these years later. But here, here's what's happening. In a real sense, Abraham is failing as a man of God to just wait and trust God. He really is. He's, he's, I failed too, so I'm not being too hard on him, but he's failing here. And Sarah's failing as a wife to wait as well and to encourage Abraham to trust God. And she's failed as a leader to Hagar. Hagar failed as a maidservant, and she ran away. And suddenly, it's interesting to me how the story shifts in its direction where it takes this turn that it's really, for a little while, no longer about Abraham and Sarah, but it's about this young slave who's pregnant and runs away. It's hard for me to blame her. She's caught up in this unsolvable family, horrible dynamic. Those are the worst kinds. And so she would rather go back to Egypt and just try to figure out how to live her life than to stay and deal with all the drama. I understand that. But here's the thing for this poor lady. She's dirt poor. She's broke. She's pregnant. She's afraid. And she's walking through a desert. Now, you know what she feels. She feels alone. She feels devastated. What am I going to do? How am I going to figure this out? But the Bible teaches us something wonderful here. The Bible teaches us that God has been watching that situation for that young lady. Somewhat of a victim, somewhat not. Doesn't matter. When you're in a problem, doesn't matter how it started. Doesn't matter who caused the problem. You're just in the problem. She's in a tough place. And God does something wonderful. He sends an angel to her. It's a glorious thing. Never happened to me. 
I think it would be cool. Probably would scare him to death, but I, I'm up for it. Send an angel, have a conversation. Here's what it says in Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, what have you come from, and where are you going? And she openly says, I'm running away from my mistress Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel adds a promise of God. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So God gives her a promise. But what's going on here is as he finds her resting near a spring, he's, she's in this place on a road that leads to a town called S-H-U-R in our language. And the Hebrew word from which that is translated means something like wall or ox, something big that just stops you. It's like a wall. And it's like God is trying to tell us in this story that she has hit a wall. She stopped at this well. She's getting a drink. Her life is bad. She probably is reconsidering everything. She's hit a, she's hit a wall. You ever felt that way? I have. Walls are real things in our life. We hit them. We hit them. Especially when we just haven't been listening to the Lord. And often we wonder when we do hit them if God was watching while we ran straight into it. Well, he was in her case. He was watching the whole time. But then God went about helping her. And this is so good. So hang in here with me. He tells her she's going to be a mother to a son called Ishmael. They're going to have offspring too. And for now, the angel tells her that the right thing for your life is to turn around and go back and submit to that family because God wants to bring healing. And so I love it. She takes the correction of the Lord. She remains humble. She's hurt, wounded, but realize God, she realized that God has spoken to her about right things. And so she does something amazing. In her moment of reconciliation with her heart and God and softening her spirit, she gives a name to the Lord, and it's a defining name that blesses us today as we read about it. Verse 13 says this, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, and it says this, You are the God who sees me. Now that's beautiful. Say it with me. You are the God who sees me. Ready? You are the God who sees me. This is beautiful. In Hebrew, it's El Roy. El Roy. It's one of many names given to God that's stuck in the Bible. And this one is from right here. And it literally says, God is a God who sees me. It's the only time we find this name of God used in the Bible. But there's so much meaning here as we learn from this precious woman. These words, wonderful words. And I love how the words don't come from Abraham. They don't come from Sarah. They come from a slave. And so when God shows up in this slave's life, she's amazed. Amazed that God saw her situation enough to find her and speak to her. Here's the deal. God saw Abram and Sarah, and God saw this slave. And here's the beautiful part. He loved her enough to go find her. That God meant met with Hagar in the desert is a deeply personal 
and wonderful thing that teaches us something amazing about what God does when he sees you. He goes to love you. He loved her enough to meet her need, to correct her, redirect her, and bless her all at the same time and send her back into the situation because they're going to have a safe place to go to. There's going to be healing for a season of her life. And guys, this is a beautiful and wonderful story that teaches me so many things. It teaches really important truths about what God does when he sees your life and mine. So here's a few things, some notes, if you want to take them there in your bulletin, if you like to do that. I want to make a couple of, give you a couple of thoughts about what happens when God sees. First of all, God always sees with the right intentions. Okay? God looks at your life. He's not looking with bias. He's not looking in a, in a way to manipulate you. He's not looking to get something out of you. You know, we do that as human beings. He has the right intentions. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Mm. Wonderful to know this. And in this family, God saw the hurt. He saw the frustration. He saw the sin. He saw the confusion. But God had a plan for them. God saw the anger in Hagar's life, and it caused her to run. And running is a way that we handle problems sometime in life. But God can see past our rebellion. He can see past our anger. He can see past our hurts because he had a plan for her like he has a plan for you. So when God looked at Hagar and Abram and Sarah, God saw his plan. Of course they're hurt. They're weak and broken and need counseling and food and sleep and all that stuff. But when God speaks to her in the desert, all that pain gets put in perspective. And what I love is this precious lady just gets amazed that God had seen her at all. She's a slave. She's low on the totem pole of important people in ancient culture. And she's thinking, why would God imagine to look my way? Sometimes you feel that. I know you do. Because most of the time she felt invisible. That was really her job, just to serve others and be invisible. Didn't matter. What she wanted didn't matter. But when God sent her an angel, her anger and her pain just sort of collapsed. And, and here's what's going on. Just because her human flesh took her on a rampage, it doesn't mean that she didn't believe in God. She did believe in God. And she wanted God's influence. But she was just being fleshly. So God sent her an angel to teach her about it and pour truth back into her heart. And God will do the same thing with you through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word if you'll let him. So when you're angry or frustrated or hurt or anxious or trying to fix God's plans for your life, he has plans for you that he can guide you with and it has to do with the voice of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. But it takes some humility because for her to return back to Abram and Sarah would take humility. But she wasn't just being humble before them. She's being humble in the face of the sovereignty of God. It's an important thing. It's important that we be humble enough to believe in God's intentions, to believe that God's plan for our life is the very best plan. So God sent her back because that's where his will was going to unfold for all of them. And even though there's dysfunction, God adopts her into this plan. The will of God is not something to fear, guys. It's something to embrace 
and to cherish. Here's another thing. When God sees you, he sees your heart. He always sees you with the best of intentions, and he always sees your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Very clear here. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love this about God. He doesn't have to figure out what's on your mind and heart. He knows already. That's tricky for us in our relationships. What does this person mean? We often say, what does this person want from me? Can I trust them? God knows you enough to look straight into your soul. And I need to hear this. And sometimes we say, well, God knows my heart about this situation, even though I'm not doing the right things. And that's a biblical truth. He knows more about you than you know yourself. He also knows that our hearts can be deceptive. He knows that your heart can lead you astray. And he also knows when your heart wants to love him. So guys, this is important. This is a good thing that God can see your heart. So I pray that in your life right now, you open your heart more to that knowingness of God and let him move you. Solomon taught us, Proverbs 5 and 23, above all else in life, guard your heart. That's the wellspring of life. Lots of scriptures here, I know. Here's another thought. God sees you so that he can save you. God wants to save you. It's kind of an expansion of that first point. But the purpose of his vision on our life is to do what's best for us, to save us, to take us to heaven. And that means he'll bless you or he'll rebuke you because he's trying to save you. But in the middle of that, he's going to guide us. He sees when we run off into the desert. He sees when we're scared. He sees when we panic. He sees when we hurt. He sees when we run into walls. He sees when we're just deciding that it's up to us to fix things. He sees all of that. And he sees and he looks at your heart and he decides what he can do to save you. So when God interrupts your plans, he's trying to save you. Isn't that beautiful? And finally... God sees your righteousness. <coughs> he sees that you've been saved. He sees your heart has been given to Jesus and it never escapes God. Even when you're panicking and even when you're doing your own God planning, He sees that you have been righteously saved by Jesus and that means amazing things for us. That salvation that rests on your life because of the blood of Jesus is something that is never hidden from God. You never have to remind God of that. He knows it, my friend. He sees your righteousness. He saw Noah's. So guys, as you prepare for your week, as we get ready to pray this morning, I want to remind you of this. When you feel your most vulnerable, when you feel your most tempted, when you feel your most confused, when you feel your most broken, and even when you feel invisible, he sees you. He's Elroy. He's, he's a God who sees me. We can find hope and we can find power in that name given to God because of a slave. If he would bless her like that, he's telling us that he loves everyone, no matter their situation. And what he wanted from her the most is to just put her back in his plan. Would you pray with me this morning, my friends?
thank you for your word, Father. I thank you today that it's a slave that teaches us how to live our lives. I thank you for this story. I thank you that you are indeed a God who sees. So we rejoice in that. More than that, you're a God who sees each of us. That intimacy is something, oh God, we just give you praise for it. We just give you praise. Lord, you know my heart today.